Thanks, Brian. Good morning, everyone. This is a funny story, right? I hope you, I hope you see a little humor in it, but it's also very pointed and poignant and applicable to right this moment in time here in the 21st century. So I'll take a moment, we'll pray, and then uh, uh, we'll look at this together. Father, thanks that we can gather here within these walls, and we're mindful that we live in a time of tribalism and fear and anxiety and bitterness and division, uh, verbal grenades tossed often among people ostensibly of goodwill, difficulty in getting along. I'd like to pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would just kind of move among us here uh, within these walls and as well online for those who are listening, and that you'd shape us and speak to us that we might take a step toward being people of hope and reconciliation and, and love. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, as we look at this story this morning, I'll begin by asking the question, who has seen the, the uh, movie Free Solo uh, about climbing El Cap? I've been gone a couple of weeks, you haven't had a climbing story, and I know you're missing those, so <laughs> I'll, I'll just uh, share with you. Uh, this guy named Alex climbs 3,000 feet of vertical ground without a rope, and if you really feel like you need an adrenaline rush in your life, you should watch the film. It's really well made, and it's more than just a climbing story. It is a story about the human heart and that kind of thing. But the point in the moment here is this. He gets to the top, and when he gets to the top, he calls his girlfriend, and now quoting directly, uh, he says, I've never had a bigger smile on my face than the one I have right now. And uh, you, if you capture that moment, you go, yeah, he has a, he has a huge smile on his face, right now, and like, I, he is just so filled with joy, and so this is kind of this amazing story of someone who sets out to do something and then does it and succeeds and celebrates in the doing. Now, contrast that with Jonah. Uh, he did what he set out to do. He succeeded if success is defined as um, uh, repentance on the part of the Ninevites after being warned of their impending cultural meltdown due to their sin, and then they escaped their judgment. So he was sent to call for repentance. They repented, and God spared God's hand from judgment on the Ninevites. So Alex had a goal, reached it, big grin. Jonah reached the goal that God gave him, but in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, this is what you read, God saw their deeds, the Ninevites, they turned from their wicked ways, and God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared. And as a result of that, we see this response of Jonah that leads for us this morning. If we look at the slide, this is uh, Jonah's final act is the title this morning. And then if we go to the next slide immediately, I'll show you. These are the three scenes of Jonah's final act. We're going to see in chapter 4. Jonah's anger with God. God's instruction to Jonah and, and the truth that compassion is God's heart. So we're going to look at those three things this morning, beginning, of course, with uh, what Brian just read in verse 1, Jonah's anger with God. So remember, Nineveh uh, has repented, and there's a kind of a revival breaking out in a sense. People are turning toward God. God is staying God's hand of judgment. So... The, like you'd think, the text would read, so Jonah returned to his land rejoicing that people had stepped into the story of hope God is writing in the world, grateful that he had played a small part in changing the lives of others. The end. 
right? It'd be like a Disney ending. But this is not the happiest place on earth because what happens is this. The repentance of the Ninevites, verse 1, greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. I, and I, this is powerful. He's not just displeased. He's displeased with an adjective. Does that make sense? He's greatly displeased. In other words, he's beyond mildly disappointed. He's furious precisely with the outcome of his obedience. Like he did the right thing and people responded with faith and repentance and he is now angry and it leads me to believe that though he had a moment of repentance and he was willing to go to Nineveh, his ultimate hope was that he would preach to these people and then they would not actually turn to God and be destroyed anyway. That would have been Jonah's preferred final outcome. So he's greatly displeased, <coughs> excuse me, and then it says this, he prayed to the Lord. Now I'm going to stop right there because this word Lord is significant. He appeals to Lord here in the prayer for the first time since chapter 2, and by using the name Lord, what he's appealing to is uh, God as the personal covenant-keeping God. Now, this is very important. Everything else won't make sense unless you get this. So watch this. Uh, God has many names, but the two main names for God in the Old Testament are Elohim in Hebrew and Jehovah or Yahweh, depending on how you want to argue about that. But you get it. Je I, I say Jehovah. Jehovah and Elohim, those two names. Are, so far, so good? When you see God in the Bible with a capital G, little O, little D, that's Elohim. When you see Jehovah in the Bible, you don't see Jehovah in the Bible. What you see is Lord in all caps. So Lord in all caps, Jehovah. God, big G, little O, little D, Elohim. Now, why does that matter? Because those two names are articulating two different character qualities of God. This goes all back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, did the Lord create the heavens and the earth? What's Genesis 1-1? Anybody know? In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim. So ch chapter 1 is a creation narrative with God as a creator. And what does it say? God spoke, said, let there be light, and what? Boom! Big bang, there was light. Like all the universe is reduced to a little piece of matter, and then it's like a Star Wars light speed thing, right? And then it's all, and then... You know, it all begins. Everything begins. But it begins with a word of immense, infinite power. So when we see God in the Bible, G-O-D, Elohim, we're really learning about God's character as powerful. When you see Jehovah, you, the Jehovah creation narrative is in Genesis chapter 2. And in chapter 2, what does it say? Would you come up here? Come on. It's okay. What's your name? Connor, okay, yeah. So, so Connor's, he's not, this is not Connor anymore, this is Adam, right? What does it say? God created man, but it doesn't say God, it's there, it's the Lord, Jehovah. It says he fashioned him into this beautiful specimen, right? <laughs> and when God created, what did, when, the, when the Lord created humanity, what did the Lord say? He saw Adam slash Connor, and it was good. Give him a hand. Thank you. No one, this is why no one will ever sit in the front row again. 
but thank you very much. It's very good. Uh, the personal, covenant-keeping nature of God. Does this make sense? So on the one hand, God is powerful. Boom. Speaks. It becomes. On the other, God has this fond, creative affection for his creation humanity. But when the name Lord appears again, it's in Genesis 12, where the Lord shows up for Abraham and says, I, the Lord, will make of you a great nation. Now, this is where Lord gets dangerous at times because it now becomes not uh, the covenant keeper for all nations, God's ultimate desire, but the covenant keeper for our people. Do you see? Nobody questions God, you know, God, Elohim, for the whole universe. But Lord... No, no, that's our, we're, yeah, come on, we're Israel, that's our title. We get Lord. So he appeals to Jehovah, and by using the name Lord, he kind of highlights the personal and covenant-keeping nature of God, and the reality is that this personal nature of God's character carries a risk with it, and the risk is this, that our view of God becomes tribal. In, in, in this case, uh, look, he's the God of the Jews, but not the Ninevites. Are you with me? So, so no, you're supposed to destroy them. They're not, uh, our, they're not our kind. Man, and if that's our thinking, then it applies all over the planet, right? He's the, he's the, it's the God of white people, but no one else. That's called white supremacy. The God of the settlers, not the natives. The God of the homeowners, not the homeless. The God of the straight, not the gay. The God of the open and affirming, not the God of those who hold a traditional view of marriage. The God of the Republicans, not the Democrats. The God of the Democrats, not the Republicans. The God of the citizens, not the immigrants. The God of the born, not the unborn. The God of the rich, not the poor. The God of the Catholics, not the Protestants. The God of the emergent, not the evangelical. The God of the evangelical, not the fundamentalist. Are you, are, this is what we do. And it's called tribalism, and, 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 and we segment, and then we gather with people who look like us, vote like us, think like us, shop like us, and then this is what we say, and it's terrible, our God, as if, as if this God belongs to us, and, and God's mad at everybody else. And that's exactly how Jonah is thinking. And hear me, when God becomes tribal, people are no longer worshiping the God who created the universe, but instead they're using God language to reinforce their place in the world. Like God's on our side. This happened in Germany. This happens in America regarding race. This happened in Rwanda. This happens in the political arena. This happens in denominationalism. This happens all over the world. It's not that people are saying there is no God. It's that people are saying that God has chosen sides and that we have the God. Subtext, others don't. Listen, I'm going to encourage you this morning to confine your tribalism to sports. Like, it's okay. <laughs> like, if you're a Seahawks fan, fine. Hate the quote-unquote 49ers. It's, it's a fine. You, you want to? It's a, no problem. Like, I, I'm a giant fan, baseball-wise, and um, so I was taught to despise the, the Dodgers, you know? And so when, they, when they're on the field, I'm like, may you always lose. I don't care who you're playing. I don't care what the time of day is. I don't care how much I may like a particular player who happens to be a Christian. When you're on the field, may you always lose. You're wearing Dodger blue. I don't like you in any way. Okay? It's fine. 
confine you. Like I do that. I, some of you know, if you follow me on Facebook at all, you know that I trash talk sports often. <laughs> when my team loses, I go into radio silence. But when, when, my, when my enemies lose, man, I've always got, you know, something to say. And it's whatever. It's fun. It's fun. I mean, I, was, I spoke in LA, just got back. Uh, and I was down there and I was, you know, ribbing people all the time about, about the Dodgers, even speaking, you know. But whatever. We know that God's beyond that. That's just like a way, an outlet for the human flesh. It's fine. But then I'm saying, pour it there. Don't pray for an American win. That means another nation loses. Or a win for your race. That means another race loses. That's not okay. Why? Because we belong to a kingdom which has been created by God breaking down every single dividing wall. Romans chapter 7 verse 9. Here's the end of the, this is the end of history. God says, I looked and before me was a great multitude. No one could count. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, every skin color, subtext, every political system, let alone party. Socialists, communists, capitalists, Black, white, rich, poor, homeless, all standing before the throne of the Lamb. That's not um, Jonah's view of the world. When the Ninevites repent, this is what it says, verse 3, he's so angry, he wants to die. Now, uh, Tim Keller articulates this, a pastor from New York, and I quote him a little bit at length now so that we can understand why this is so important for us today. The will of God and the political fortunes of Israel seem to be diverging in this story. Why? Well, uh, one would have to be chosen, either the will of God or the political fortunes, and Jonah leaves no doubt as to which of these two concerns are more important to him. Of course, anyone who cared for his own country would have been anxious about a serious survival. It was a terrorist state. I mean, they were violent, proud, arrogant people. Jonah, however, did not turn to God with that anxiety. If he had to choose between the security of Israel and loyalty to God, he was ready to push God away and choose security for Israel. That is not just concern and love for one's country, that's a deification of one's country. Some years ago, this is Keller speaking, some years ago I preached on this passage in Jonah and after the sermon a listener came and confronted me and said, uh, don't criticize Jonah, Jonah was being a good patriot and we should all be good patriots. And I answered him and I said that while love of country and people is a good thing, and hear this, like any other love, it, becomes, it can become inordinate. If your love for country leads you to exploit people, or in this case, root for an entire class of people to be spiritually lost or destroyed, your love of your nation is idolatry by any definition. Keller continues, those who value economic and military flourishing of their country over the good of the human race and the furthering of God's work in the world are sinning in the same manner as Jonah. Their identity is too deeply rooted in their race and nationality rather than in being, in being cho uh, children of God. Wow. Timely? Absolutely. And what this does is this creates a self-righteousness that has a mindset, I'm here and other people are here. And the problem with self-righteousness is that we end up believing that God's favor on anyone is somehow uh, contingent on our performance vis-a-vis -vis God. Does that make sense? 
In other words, uh, the self-righteous man is like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. If you know the story, the, the one son, here's the dad, the one son says, I want my inheritance, boom, I want it now. He takes the money, he goes off, he squanders all his money. The older son stays home, continues working in the fields. The younger son, when he, when he hits bottom, he repents, he wants to come home. When he comes home, dad throws him a party. And when you read the story, this is what you realize. When the day is done, at the end of the story, the, the problem son isn't the younger son. The problem son is who? The older son who's like this. How can you love him? And that's, a, that's not a little problem. Uh, that's a game changer. Because it betrays this revelation that I think that God's love for me is contingent on my performance. As long as I stay in the field and do my thing and have my quiet time and do my devotions and tithe and go to church and quote unquote as a verb, you know, witness and, and keep my nose clean and if I do the right things, then, you know, I, I get the white shirt. No, you don't. Like, God's love for you was never based on any of that, but to the extent that we think it's true, then when we see God's favor on those who are different than us, racially, economically, educationally, politically, we get angry. And this is evidence that we completely miss the point. And I mean completely. If you're like this, how can God love those Republicans? That's a problem. How can, how can God love those liberals? That's a problem. How can God love those Catholics? It's a huge problem. How can God love those uh, of, that, of that whatever, of that, of that class, of that ideology, of that party, of that nation? Because that thinking shows a fundamental flawed understanding of the character of God. And it's that understanding that we need to reshape this morning. So uh, if we go back up to the thing, the slide, Jonah's anger with God. Now, he's expressed his anger. He's like, I'm angry enough to die, right? So now God teaches Jonah, and we pick it up, verse 3. Therefore now, Lord, please take my life from me. Death is better than life. That's what he says. I'd rather die than see you loving those people. Uh, very interesting. Here's Jonah. He's chosen by God. He's loved by God. He's called by God. He's given a ministry by God. And the ministry that God gave him is blessed by God. And at the same time, he's proud, bitter, self-absorbed. I'm going to tell you why I love that. He's a mixture. Just like at least one person in the room that I know. A mixture. Called? Loved? Used? Yeah. Proud? Self-absorbed? Bitter? Yeah. This takes us out of the binary thinking that is the bane of our culture right now. As if, you know, we who are called are somehow here. And some of this, in my opinion, has its roots in the doctrine of total depravity. Because if I have a doctrine of total depravity, what I, what I, what I see then is, uh, all I see is kind of the dark side over here. And 
I tend then to think anyone outside of the faith community is only wearing the all black. Does that make sense? And when you come to Jesus, he throws a little white in there too, you know, and then it becomes a little bit, bit of a mixture, but it's all black. I'm going to suggest to you, that the, well, not suggest, I'm going to tell you the reason that I don't subscribe to total depravity is because not only are we thoroughly broken, but we're also at the same time, always and forever, Genesis 9, made in the image of God. So that, do I have greed? Yeah. Complacency? Cynicism? Lust? Sure, it's all here. Bring it. And also uh, have like a capacity for gratitude and love. And sometimes I do the right thing. That's true of everybody in the room, right? You look at people, you look at Mozart and you're like this, man, what a disaster of a guy. You know, an addict, gambling, proud, arrogant. And then he writes, he writes the mass and you go, That's, there's only one explanation, the guy's anointed. Well, how does God anoint people like that? Hello? That's what God does, right? God anoints broken people. And so now everything's leveled. Uh, when my wife and I got married, the, we started to not like the pastor who did our wedding. We started to not like him, right? And we would grumble about this guy at times. And so there was a point, because uh, we went to, the, we were attending the church of this guy who did our wedding. It was a point where we needed to go and we went in, we said, we want to make an appointment with you. And we went in and uh, we confessed to him that we'd, we'd been bitter and that there was a, the relationship was broken and that we wanted to fix it. And we said, man, we are so sorry. We're convicted that we've been thinking ill of you and, and wishing ill on you in a sense. We were super convicted about it. And I'll never hear what he said. He's, he said, oh, there's nothing to forgive. He said, listen, I'm so glad you came in, but we're all level at the foot of the cross. I'm broken, you're broken, and so we're united. What a good word, man. Black hats, white hats. We love those kind of movies, don't we? Like where you know at the very beginning of the movie that who the bad guys are and who the good guys are we, I, we love, but then you find these movies annoying where you think that guy's a good guy and at the end he's a bad guy and you go, Me! I was cheering for him the whole time he's, and he's actually got the black hat on. No, no, nobody has the black hat or the white hat. What? We're, we're all a mixture. Romans 7, the good I want to do, I don't do. The bad I don't want to do, I do. So... Um, we see that, and therefore we need to see that uh, there will be times when God calls us to do things that we don't want to do. And, and this is what's important this morning. And there will be times, watch this, when you do the right thing and you don't feel better after doing the right thing. This is hard to hear, but this is the reality. Sometimes you do the right thing, you don't feel... Who in the room, let's just do a little survey, who's had a hard conversation and it didn't turn out well? Look at that. Um, who has overcome temptation by saying no to an appetite? You knew it was out of bounds. And you said no and you walked away, but rather than feeling the satisfaction of doing the right thing, you were just hungrier than ever for the thing that you just said no to. Has that ever happened to any of you in the room? Yeah. 
Who's ever exercised because you knew you should and you didn't get a runner's high? Instead, you're just achy and angry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a narrative that we're kind of taught. Hey, just do the right thing and you're going to be flooded with peace. Really? Joseph did the right thing. He was tossed in prison and forgotten. Jeremiah did the right thing and he was tossed in a pit. Jesus did the right thing and he ended up hanging on a cross. So the right thing doesn't always create these kind of kumbaya moments where we're all kind of singing and hugging and stuff like that. The right thing can be hard and doesn't always make us feel better. So we'll kind of leave it there and understand the reason we don't always feel better after obedience is there's still stuff inside of us in need of transformation. Really? Yes, even Jesus, what do we know? Hebrews 2, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And he, in the garden, he said, God, if I could write my own ticket, I'd skip the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And as soon as he purposed to follow uh, God's will all the way to the cross, it didn't make the cross any less painful. Obedience can be hard, right? So this is a situation. Jonah did something that he didn't want to do. And the outcome was God's desired outcome, and Jonah is still mad. So then we kind of have to ask the question, why is Jonah still mad? There's stuff in Jonah that God has to deal with. So God's very patient with Jonah, and he asks a question in verse 4. He says, do you have good reason to be angry? And we don't get any uh, response other than by action. Jonah leaves the city, and he goes and sits down outside the city, if we look again. At the picture, there he is outside the city, and he's sitting under that tree with that, with that plant that is going to grow up here in a minute that I'll tell you about, okay? So we didn't get, Jonah's outside the city, and why is he sitting outside the city? Because he's still hoping that God will change God's mind and judge the city, and he doesn't want to be in the city when flames fall down from the sky, right? So, so at, a, at a level... The culture, the people, he has many reasons to hate them. So at a human level, it's understandable he wants to see God destroy them. Their destruction, in his mind, will result in his joy and comfort. Really interesting. When a group of people are vilified, we no longer view them the way God views them, as image bearers, worthy of love and dignity. When, when you vilify a people group, and it could be, again, any number, like a, a political party or a denomination or a nation or whatever, when you vilify a people group, then you just want to see them destroyed. So to make God, uh, Jonah stay more comfortable at, on the outskirts of the city, it's because it's hot, God causes a, a tree to grow really rapidly so that almost instantly he's sitting in shade. And then we're told, this cracks me up, he was ready to die. Now he's sitting out here waiting for God to destroy Nineveh. A tree grows up and he's got some shade. And it says, now, in very strong language, he's delighted and glad. Isn't that amazing? Like, I wanted to die. Now I have shade. So I can sit here and watch the show when God hopefully destroys Nineveh. And he's like this, well, finally something's going right for me. It's a good day today, man. I got a shade tree. And then, 
And then it says, this story just cracks me up. God appoints a worm to go eat the tree, and it dies. And then Jonah says, death is better than life to me. Just kill me now. <laughs> this just cracks me up. Uh, like he had no shade, and he wasn't mad, other than wanting to see the Ninevites destroyed. Then he has shade, and he's overjoyed. And then when the shade is gone, it's not that, oh, well, I didn't have this shade a little while ago. I'll, it's fine. When the shade is gone, what? Just kill me now, God. I mean, life is just hopeless, right? He has lost all objectivity. How does that happen? Hebrews 12, 15 says it this way. All of us in the room are warned against allowing a root of bitterness to spring up in our lives. Why? Because we're told the root of bitterness is defiling to many. And what you see in this text is the bitterness of Jonah over the situation with the Ninevites, and it's put him in a place of self-pity, which causes him to lose all objectivity. So God says, do you have reason to be angry? And watch this. Do you have reason to be angry? Here's God. Look, I've called you. I've loved you. I've saved you from your own stupidity more than once. And yet you're so bitter that you are completely blind <clears throat> to all that's around you that's good. You're just, bitterness has destroyed you in that way. When bitterness is a root in our lives, it betrays a dissonance between our heart and the heart of God. Why? Because, hear me, God never functions out of bitterness, ever. And, and if functioning out of bitterness doesn't describe most of the human race most of the time, I don't know what does. I was skiing last winter on a Wednesday afternoon, just for like an hour, because I live close. And, and I, I get to the line, and the people in front of me, it's perfect powder, and the sky is blue, but there, because there's some powder, there's a few more people than normal on a Wednesday, and there's a line, about a three-minute line, three minutes, which is not typical on a weekend, right? Three minutes. And here's these guys in front of me, three guys, and they're just swearing up a storm. Blind. Bleep, 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 blind. Can't believe blah, blah, blind. Who are all these blah, blah people? Why don't you go back to the blah, blah city? Like they're just unhappy, right? And then they start whining about the powder. Blah, 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 powder. Too deep. You know. Oh, I brought the wrong skis. Should have brought the other skis, right? I mean, sky, blue. I was ridiculous, right? So you kind of look, you laugh, but here's the thing. The news cycle does that to all of us right now, or many of us. Perpetually unhappy, perpetually nervous, perpetually angry. And then we're like this, well, I have a solution. I'll just ignore the world. Not a good solution. I'll just turn the TV off. Not a good solution. Oh, I know, rage. I'll shoot my television. Not a good solution. Won't, won't change anything. Cynicism, not a good solution. What's the solution? Gratitude. Gratitude will quench the fires of bitterness. And if we don't practice gratitude, we're going to be bitter. 
Somebody ask you, do you have a reason to be angry? And all of us in the room could say, of course I have a reason to be angry. I'll tell you why. And then I can point to the news cycle, and I can point to articles, and I can point to particular politicians, and I can point to denominations, and I can point to spiritual leaders, and I can point to my life story, and the way my parents have let me down, and I can point to the traffic in Seattle, and I can, and I can point to the taxes, and the increase in property taxes, and the liberal, or the conservative. I can point, I can point, you can point. Good, we can all point. But before, I, before you answer the question, do you have good reason to be angry, just stop just for a minute and taste the clean water. And look at the house in which you live, or the apartment. And look at the city in which you live, one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And the mountains, and the, and, and the water, and the sunshine, and the seasons. And, and inhale, breathe the air. It's clean. Consider the fact that there are people who love you. Consider the fact that you're filled with the life of God. Consider the fact that you have eyes to see. Consider the fact that we can receive love for one another. Consider gift after gift after gift. This is exactly what Jonah wasn't doing. <laughs> and it's why he became a nationalist. Like bitterness will kill the love of God inside you. And gratitude will quench the fires of bitterness. Which brings us to the final scene. Compassion is God's heart. So this is what I want you to see. That little tree dies, and uh, God says to Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And Jonah's response, I mean, it's like, why are you asking such an ob obvious question? Of course, I have, like, of course I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Just kill me now if I can't have my shade tree. <laughs> and then the Lord says, you have compassion on the plant. Stop right there. Word compassion, very important in this text. Here's why. In the day, the, philosopher, the philosophers of the day said there are two kinds of love. There's benevolent love and attachment love. Benevolent love means this. Uh, you do good things for someone because you have to. Have you, we've said this before sometimes. Oh yeah, I love him, but I don't like him. That's benevolent love. Attachment love is uh, s s someone evokes in you a response of warmth and, you, and you, everything in you wants to be with that person, right? I have that kind of um, attachment love for my wife. Like I love to, when I see her, she makes me smile. Most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time. <laughs> it's attachment love. So I like to come up and give her a little back rub, you know, and kiss her on the head and all that good stuff. I also own a pair of uh, uh, roller cross-country skis, which I purchased because I had this vision of me going around Green Lake in spandex <laughs> on roller cross-country skis, and I've, I've never been able to bring myself to actually do it. <laughs> and so when I see those skis, I'm like, yeah, I should care for these skis. I should lubricate the wheels. I should, I, I mean, I, I, they're mine. I own them. So I'll, you know, like a good steward, I'll take care of them. Uh, but that's not attachment love. Do you understand? That's benevolent love. And the, and the view of the day was this. Yeah, God does loving things, but it's always benevolent love toward humans. Because look at us. We're a, stinking disaster, man. Greedy, selfish, we murder our own. 
It's obligatory love. Yeah, God loves us the way Richard loves his roller skate skis. And in this text, what does God say? He says to uh, Jonah, you have uh, attachment love for this tree. Compassion, warm feelings. This plant, less than 24 hours old. I, on the other hand, the creator of the universe, Jehovah, Elohim Jehovah, I have compassion, I have attachment love for the Ninevites. Now I'm going to tell you, this would be, boom, off the map, radical news for the readers of the day because it reframes the character of God. And this is what it says. God doesn't look at any of us and say, oh yeah, I have to love Richard. And I know, I know, you know, beneath his veil of religious propriety, he's a mess, but I have to love him. No. God delights in me. It's this picture of God wrapping me in God's arms. Not because God has to, because God wants to be with me. And by the way, you. And by the way, uh, a person in ISIS. <laughs> and by the way, Donald Trump. And by the way, Pete Buttigieg. And by the way, your gay neighbor and your straight neighbor. And your straight neighbor who thinks gay neighbors are headed for hell. God, who does God love? Who is God delighted in? Everyone. We're the objects of God's fond affection and delight. And God's, trying, God's been trying to tell us this for 6,000 years. And we're slow to learn. I mean, church history tells us we're slow to learn. The gospel is the story of God's relentless commitment born not out of obligation, but affection. And how, how does this happen? Well, Christ is the cure for sin sickness. So when God delights in us, what God sees are a group of people for whom God has fond affection, but who have been stricken by the disease of sin that presents in all its ugly forms. And God is seeking to woo us by saying, look, I've given you so much. Return to me and realize full healing. So that you then, having been healed by my love, can go love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, that's the gospel. Jonah doesn't get it. May we learn from his mistake. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the example. And thank you that you love Jonah at the end of the story as much as you did at the beginning because your love for all of us is not predicated on performance. But I pray, Father, that you'd speak to each one of us now as we close about those in our lives uh, for whom we have no fond affection, those that, for whom we have bitterness, toward whom we have hatred. I just pray, Father, that you would change our hearts, that we would see the other with your eyes, that we would have the mind of Christ, and that we would act on that as people of love, and we'll thank you as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As, as we do this first song, I'm going to encourage you to allow God to bring to your mind people in your life with whom you have a problem. And it could be a person, it could be a political party, it could be a politician, it could be a neighbor, it could be a parent, it could be anybody, but someone who's hard to love. Do you understand what I'm saying? And would you just 
write down those names as they come to mind so that you can then begin to step into God's story, not in the way Jonah did, but in the way God does through Christ and become a person who's loving and being the presence of love for everyone that you meet. Let's respond as we sing. Mm -hmm.